everyone welcome back to signal or noise this is episode 10 charlie Bellello here and with me as always peter maluk peter a lot of interesting topics to talk about today i want to start out with this study that was mentioned in the wall street journal talking about an optimal age for financial decision making it's pretty interesting what they said and it was a few different studies that both came to the same conclusion they said there was an actually an age where people make their best financial decisions and that age they said was between the age of 53 and 54 and looking at things like credit card fees that people are paying taking out too much in terms of debt in terms of other decisions they just put this all together they actually did a questionnaire as well asking people certain basic financial literacy and this is the age where people did well what do you make of the idea that there's an age where people make the best financial decision? Obviously, the knowledge that you get through the years in your 20s and 30s and 40s, you're building that knowledge. So it makes some sense to me. But why should people have to wait until they're 53 or 54 to have some of this basic financial knowledge? Don't you think there could be a better way to bring that forward earlier in your life? Of course. I will tell you, I see with my clients that these studies are probably spot on. I think until you're 52, 53, you're young, you're having fun, then you buy your first house. There's not a lot of decisions to make because all your money's going into your house. You might be getting out of student loan debt. You don't have enough income to do anything other than maybe go out to eat and hang out with your friends. If you're lucky, a couple trips. Then kids are coming and your decisions are made for you. You know, I got to somehow pay for school. Now you get to their 50s, your career has progressed. You're probably at the top of your game wherever you are. Your income is at its peak or close to its peak. Your mortgage is under control. Your kids are in college or on their way to college or out of college. And so you have time to breathe and think and go, okay, now what do I do? And the other thing you have is you're 7 to 15, 20 years away from retirement. So you're going, wait a second is what I've done in my 401k while I had no other opportunities enough to make that happen. And so you're starting to think about it and you're capable of saving. So that's the age where people get serious and sit down and figure this out. But of course, the best time to figure it out is today. And that's only because yesterday is not available, right? If you can figure this stuff out in your 20s, then you get the number one thing that creates successful outcomes. The number one thing by a wide margin is not behavior. It's not investment choices. It's time. And so the sooner you can figure this out, the sooner you know which debts to prioritize, whether to refinance a mortgage, what to choose in your 401k, how much to put in your 401k, what you could do outside of it, should it be a Roth or something else, the sooner you can do that, those returns are magnified and it makes everything a lot easier. So even if you only have 60% of it figured out in your 20s or 30s, you're better off than somebody who's got 90% of it figured it out in their 50s. Absolutely. And what I always think about is how important those early in life decisions are. If you're talking about someone going to college, and we talked about the student loan predicament that we're in today, and that huge financial decision that people are making at 18, taking on that debt. Why don't we have in this country, I don't want to say mandatory, it shouldn't be mandatory, but why don't we have more of an effort to align the interests of these students who are taking on this debt with their future selves, which they're not equipped at 18 to be making these decisions. So in terms of just a basic financial class, it wouldn't be very difficult where they're able to evaluate, well, what does this debt mean versus the future income of the career that I'm thinking about? What are the benefits of starting to save early? What are the harmful effects of spending more than you earn in terms of taking on credit card debt? Simple, basic personal finance 101 to me, it would be so incredibly helpful to pull this forward. It just boggles my mind why we aren't doing more of that in terms of high school and even earlier. Completely agree. So here's a fascinating thing in terms of, first of all, do we have to learn from mistakes? That's the idea of 
financial education. We should not have to make those mistakes. We should learn from the mistakes of others. Maybe that's not true for everyone. Some people have to make that mistake themselves. But the same day, they're talking about the study where a 53 or 54 year old is making the optimal financial decision. They have this student loan article and talking about how people are going to have to start making payments again. And that's a big issue for people. It's been a few years now. There's a lot of questions about what is the process going to be. And very early in the article, they mentioned a 75 year old who has been paying off student loans for 20 years and still has $14,000 left. So this person 20 years ago was in that prime age for making financial decisions, but it doesn't seem to have played out. Should a person of that age have this type of debt? And it just shows you that there isn't a one size fits all solution to this. Everyone's different in terms of the age where they're making that optimal financial decision. I mean, how hard did the Wall Street Journal have to look to find somebody who went to college <laughs> in their 50s, took out a student loan, and then got a degree that didn't translate into paying off this? I mean, this is, I'm not saying this doesn't happen, but we're talking about this is probably a one in 2000 case. I always wonder, how do they find these people? Where I mean, this is like rich. That's something. So what do you mean? of that student loan thing before we move on to the next topic. What do you think is going to be the impact in terms of people having to make that payment again? Do you think it's going to be a hit to the economy? Do you think that we're going to see a meaningful difference? Obviously, this is a big payment for a lot of people. Do you think that there's going to be an impact here that we're going to see meaningfully in terms of consumer spending and other stuff? I think absolutely not. I think it will be extremely impactful to people that have high student loan debt and don't have incomes that enable them to make those payments. But you've got to take the group that has student loans and then that those student loans are high and proportionate to their net worth or income and that have them financed on terms where the rates are high, which this combination is an unusual set of facts. So when we look at the work we do in the community through a center called Pathway Education Center, we see a lot of people that have student loan debt and we're trying to help them plan to pay it off. Most people with student loan debt, they do have accompanying income or a lifespan where those payments can be made. That does not mean there are a lot of very, very difficult stories, but it would not be the norm. And I don't think it's going to be impactful to the overall economy, which obviously has a million moving parts and is much bigger than this issue. All right. So we'll have to wait and see on that one. Let's go to the next topic here, searching for the next big short. And this is something, Peter, that goes on pretty much every week. There are people making outlandish tweets, just that desire, obviously, to make a killing in the market in a very short period of time. And doing it on the short side is just so much more alluring because everyone else is losing while you're winning. So obviously, the prime example of that would be Michael Burry just made unfathomable returns back in 2008, betting against the housing market, betting against subprime mortgages. And for a number of years, it was very painful because he was a little bit early on that bet, but it paid off. He himself made, I think, over $100 million on that bet. His investors made over $700 million. And so when he tweets something, he has an interesting way of tweeting where he tweets something and then immediately deletes it. So whenever he does that, it gets obviously a lot of attention right. because here's someone who's obviously very smart, has a good track record, and he's saying something and people feel like they should follow that. And the Wall Street Journal just took a look at some of the recent tweets that he had and looked at the forward returns for the S&P 500 annualized over the next six months. You could see here, he's talking about a bubble in passive investing back in 2019, then March 13, 2020, so right in the thick of the COVID crash. He's saying he's making a significant bearish market bet, then talking about the greatest speculative bubble, 
could be worse than 2008 was last year right before the lows in the market and then early this year which got a lot of attention he had just a one word tweet which was sell in capital letters and you can see here all the returns over the next six months positive i think the average annualized return was 30 something percent Obviously, the lesson for investors is don't follow the advice of people making tweets and don't assume that they're doing in their own portfolio exactly what you think that they're doing. So just because he's saying sell or it could be worse in 2008, you don't know how exactly he's positioned. The evidence that market timing does not work is overwhelming. This going in and out of the market because you have to be right about when to go out, exit the market. You got to be right about when to come back in. It's incredible the data on this across mutual funds and hedge funds and anyone that does it with stocks or anything else, that if you engage with an advisor, that that's their strategy, the odds that you're going to lose are overwhelming. And I think Michael Burry, which we're talking about, is an incredible example because the most dangerous prognosticator is someone who is brilliant and someone who was right before. And Michael Burry hits both of those. I mean, here's somebody who is extremely intelligent, called the 2008-2009 crash, actually caused the way generally it would unfold. So you look at that and you go, okay, well, what's he saying next? Well, to your point, he's been predicting for years and years and years that something else is causing a bubble and everything's going to collapse. And he's been wrong over and over and over again. And when they analyze his market calls, we see that his last five market calls have been completely wrong. So you've been following his advice. It's a train wreck. And here's the thing is no one knew who he was when he made that call correctly the first time. So no one was following that advice. Now everyone knows who he is. So the people that are following his advice didn't benefit from the first go round, but they're getting hammered now. Don't listen to anybody that is promoting a strategy of moving in and out of the market. The market's too dynamic. The economy's too dynamic. It's just unpredictable. Focus on the long run. Absolutely. And so we have this recent 13F analysis, and this got a lot of attention where they're saying he bet $1.6 billion. These are option trades, so we don't really know the notional amount, and he could already be out of this trade, but got a lot of attention saying that he's betting on a market crash. That idea for people to get ahead of that, it's been around since 1987. Elaine Garzarelli, before the 1929 crash, there was a few people that made comments before that. So the allure of that is never going to go away. The idea that someone can foresee the crash, but I think for most people, making a bet in their personal portfolio, even if they thought a crash was coming, and let's say you knew for sure a crash was coming like 2020, would you be able to time it correctly? So let's say you got out in February 2020. Would you have gotten back in in April? So it's more than just the timing because eventually something bad's going to happen. Right. The market will crash. And if you say sell enough times, you're going to be right at the end of the day. But it isn't a strategy. That's the biggest problem I have with it other than it's irresponsible because people are out there listening to you and you have this voice and you're using it. He has the right to say it, obviously, but he knows that people are out there following it and he knows that he's not disclosing exactly what he's doing. So right. he can be making a, these very, very small bets over and over again where he's losing a little bit and then he has a huge payout. That's very different than someone taking their entire portfolio earlier this year and selling it because of that. And now the market's up significantly and they have to get back in. 100%. A lot of motivation behind all these market calls. Yeah, it's something that will never go away because it's entertaining, <laughs> right? <laughs> to, be, to be honest, right? It's yeah. pretty boring just to say, sit there, do nothing. Market's going to be higher 20, 30 years from now. Much more exciting to say a crash is coming. So let's talk about as an investor, what you can control. And this is a philosophical 
concept goes back a long time. Epictetus, famous Stoic philosopher, said the chief task in life is to identify and separate matters so that I can say clearly to myself which are externals and not under my control and what choices I actually control. And this applies to investing 100%. And you tweeted out this chart I thought was very instructive for investors. What we can actually control as an investor there's a lot. We can control the amount of risk we take. So the mix of stocks and bonds and volatility, and we could build a portfolio that tries to approximate what risk we can handle. We can control the cost. And we've talked about the cost of funds over time in terms of hedge funds or active funds and their higher cost or a detriment to investors. We can control our time in the market, not playing that short-term game where the odds are stacked against you. And we can control our behavior, minimizing fear and greed and in terms of just keeping our wits and not being reactive. The thing we can't control, Peter, obviously, is the thing that we focus right. on <laughs> more than anything else. Yeah. What's the return going to be? And we try to enact that. Isn't that an incredible thing that all of these other things get very little time and attention? And the one thing that we can't control, we're absolutely focused on. Yeah, it's like if you're a quarterback on a team, you can control practice, you can control learning the plays, you can control evading the rush, and you can control hitting your receiver perfectly. Once you put the ball in the air, it's over. If the receiver drops it, they drop it. But we're all focused on the outcome, and it's the same thing with the markets. You can control your risk, cost, time, behavior, all of those things that you can control control them. And then the return is going to be what it's going to be. If you execute on those things perfectly, the odds in any given year, you're still going to have a negative outcome or one in four. Don't necessarily question your process over something that's supposed to happen on occasion. Yeah. And I don't think we give enough weight to how much randomness and luck there is in terms of the timing of returns. And this chart here illustrates that. Went back to 1959, looking at 10-year cumulative S&P 500 returns. And you can see your huge wild swings. The 1950s were an incredible decade for stocks. You had almost 500% return by the end of 1959. If we look at the decade leading up to the early 1970s, terrible for stocks. And this is inflation adjusted. It would have been even worse. And then what followed that period was the 1980s and 1990s, where stocks were booming and we had the best 10-year return ever leading up to the peak in March 2000. And we know what happened thereafter. Stocks had their worst decade ever, negative 10-year return. If we fast forward following that, another great 10 years. And here we are today, kind of in the middle. I think it ran the numbers a little over 12% annualized, so pretty good over the last 10 years. Certainly better than the historical average, but not an extreme in either direction. But I think this chart just illustrates how much as an investor, you have to just be prepared for multiple outcomes, even over a 10-year period. And when you go over 20-year periods, the good news is this chart smooths out and over 30-year period smooths out even more. Yeah, always makes sense if you can zoom out, right? But if you get caught up in what seems to be the long run, the market long run is decades. This chart's a perfect example of the right way to look at it as an investor. And also impacts when people look at their returns, how important that starting point and ending point are of when you're looking at those returns. Yeah, absolutely. And for most investors, there's no set starting point, any point. Yeah. You're adding money every right. single month. So this idea that there's a lump sum for most people, that's not actually the case. And there is no end. You don't end in March 2009, you're <laughs> right. going to keep investing, hopefully, right. thereafter, and you won't suffer that negative return. How does this apply to life, Peter? This is a great tweet that 
you put out there. Talking about 10 things that require zero talent, I think is an important lesson for kids, important lesson for anyone in terms of the things we can control and how much of it is within our control. Talk to me about how you think about these things and how you taught your kids. These are certainly lessons I've taught my kids, how important this is in terms of your outcome in life. I loved this when I first saw it. And the way I think about things, what I like to talk to my kids about is, you know, everyone likes to talk about getting really ready and having this enthusiasm, momentum and motivation. But if you really look at the winners, they are persistent and they are consistent and they're doing many good things over and over and over and over again. So I think an easy way for a kid to understand is they look at an athlete. I remember there was one answer to a question that both Kobe Bryant and Michael Jordan gave similar answers where with both of them, they said, what do you do when practice is over? Or what do you do before practice? And both of them said, practice. In other words, it was the same thing over and over again, that habit every single day that really creates the separation. Most people in life at different points get motivated, they get excited, they dive into something. Very, very, very few people have the discipline to be consistent and persistent with very basic behaviors like the ones on this list that create positive outcomes. Awesome. Meme stocks, Peter. This is (laughs) something we haven't heard very much of late. Back in 2021, it wasn't that long ago, a lot of people were talking about meme stocks as a path to being a millionaire. One of the big two, GameStop being the other one, AMC, captured the intention of a lot of investors and traders, a lot of irresponsible tweets back then. You could go back and see people talking about it, saying, go in and buy these things professionals that shouldn't have been saying these kinds of things. And they were just saying, well, look, look at the returns. This is easy money and you're a fool for not taking it. AMC from the beginning of 2021 ran up 2,850%. I think at one point, Peter had a market cap bigger than almost half of the S&P. It was was crazy. It was trading (laughs) at some ridiculous valuation. And there were people out there justifying it, saying, this is the new paradigm. We have the power of Reddit can push these things up and keep them up. And what we've learned is the weighing machine eventually comes for all of these things. Fundamentals, in the end, end up mattering. Here, it took a few years. Stock went down 98%. Now you're looking at a loss for investors versus the S&P. I think the important concept other than that there's no quick way to make money, you might get lucky, but in time, that luck is going to run out, is this idea that you've talked about and I talk about a lot that not all risk is rewarded. So if we look at AMC during this period of time, 237% annualized volatility, S&P 18%. And if we look at the returns, that did not translate into higher returns. At the beginning of 2021, S&P's up around 23%. Seems very boring, but AMC now down. 41%. The aftermath, it surprised me a little bit, but I guess it shouldn't. The aftermath of the meme stock mania has gotten very little attention in terms of the media coverage. What do you make of this whole thing and the idea that there's a quick way that people were saying, and obviously not true, to become a millionaire? Well, I love that you picked AMC. AMC, we have a lot of good friends at AMC. It's literally less than a mile from where I'm standing right now. It's headquartered in Kansas City. But I did write a letter about meme stocks, and I used AMC as an example, and SPACs and NFTs. And it's like they've disappeared from the landscape. If you're watching a movie 20 years from now, one of the ways they're going to tell you that it was around 2020 and 2020 is they're going to have people talking about this <laughs> this stuff. That's what it's going to be one of the timestamps in the movie. But as you said, eventually the weighing machine comes around. If you looked at the insiders, a lot of them were selling during this period for good reason. What I really find about this, you know, hard to talk about 
I want to be gentle about it because I think the people that get caught up in this stuff, they didn't have usually money to lose. And so it's easy to look at and go, oh, this was so silly. But this kind of thing really captures people that don't have money to lose. Now, I do know that most of the people that were doing this were very young. So hopefully, even if they were doing a lot, they were getting that wisdom and those lessons we talked about earlier in the podcast at a relatively cheap lifetime price. No question. And it just fascinates thinking about the market and how it can deviate from fundamentals, where the fundamentals of AMC haven't changed all that much during this period. Right. They were losing money in early 2021. They were losing money at the peak in 2021. They're still, unfortunately for AMC, losing money today. But what changed over that period of time is Mr. Market, the sentiment, the emotions, and just not getting caught up in that. Hard to do. I haven't seen a mania like that since 1999, 2000. We might never see it again in this respect, but just being aware of that and hopefully, like you said, that people made those mistakes early on and they've learned from them. But just a final point on this, talking about the path to being a millionaire. For most people, it's a much more boring path. And Fidelity had this interesting study recently showing the number of 401k millionaires is going up this year. And that's because the stock market's going up, of course. But they looked at the characteristics of these millionaires, people with a million or more in their retirement accounts. And the one commonality, Peter, that they had was not betting big on individual stocks or taking huge risks in their portfolio. It was that simple thing that we talked about on the last podcast about saving and consistent saving, saving a lot, saving early. And they said, on average, these 401k millionaires saved 17% of their paycheck while their employees contributed another 9% at a total savings rate of over 26%, which was way, way higher than the average person. So very boring. But the reality, I know you have talked about it, the reality is most millionaires are not coming from some overnight get-rich-quick scheme. It's something that they've built over a lifetime. Yeah, if you've got a 401k, you've got a match, saving it regularly, persistent, consistent with discipline, you're going to become a millionaire or multimillionaire if you start young enough. It's just that easy. Okay. The future of wealth management, Peter, I know you had a busy week, creative planning in the news, big acquisition here. Tell me about your thoughts about the future of wealth management, how this fits into it, just the landscape for RAA space in general. Give me the rundown, your perspective. I know you already did this on Bloomberg, but I'm going to be a little bit easier on you <laughs> in terms of the questioning. You handled it pretty well. <laughs> yeah, you see a lot of people are moving from brokerage houses to the independent world because they want to work with a fiduciary that's not selling their own products, doesn't get investment commissions. So you're seeing that move and creative planning is a leader, if not the leader in that space. But I think what we're going to see is we're going to eventually see a few clear leaders. Still early, there's still thousands of independent firms. And the advantage of having some scale is you have negotiating power with third parties, you get better loans for your clients, better trading fees for your clients, better investment management fees, access to different investment vehicles. So there's a lot of things that benefit with that scale. Us as an independent advisor can then go negotiate with that third party to get our clients better deals instead of us better deals, right? It just really makes it a lot easier to get access to better investments and sometimes better fees to clients. It also allows you to invest in all these other things like cybersecurity and things like that that are very essential, the risk management element of the business. So I think it's really critical to have some scale. Now, even though we're a large independent 
firm even post this deal or we purchased this division from Goldman Sachs, we're still one or 2% of the size of these brokerage houses and investment banks and insurance companies. I mean, it's comparing apples and watermelons. I mean, it's just not the same thing. But being in that independent space, being a fiduciary where higher net worth individuals are migrating to, but also having the scale to access different things and get different pricing, I think that's the sweet spot and why creative planning is so motivated to get to the next level because we know that accrues to all of our clients and our entire team then has a more competitive offering. How important do you think it's going to be, and certainly this has been your philosophy from early on, a one-stop shop that you can trust for not just investment management, but also tax, legal, estate planning, insurance planning, everything else in one place. If you're looking at high net worth individuals, you can see that clearly is an advantage, but even with people, a million, few million, to be able to look at the big picture, we often focus only on the portfolio, but tax planning is huge. And being able to have that ability to see that visibility of the tax return and to help drive alpha, we'll call it that tax alpha, through that is huge as well. And so I think that's a big part of the story as well. Do you think the future is going to look more like that and creative planning? That's one of the big advantage it has over a place like Goldman Sachs. Well, I think individuals want to see legal. They want to see tax. Some of them want it all in one place and creative planning is capable of doing it, but they definitely want an advisor that understands all of it. They want somebody who can give tax advice, who can give legal advice, who can look at their picture and go, okay, if you're going to manage my money, which trust should the money be in? What are the tax consequences of these things? All things being equal, of course, the advisor that has a team that understands those implications is going to be better positioned. And I think people are figuring that out. And that's why you're seeing people migrate towards firms that are able to provide that. All right, let's go to signal or noise. And this is kind of a preemptive signal or noise. We're not there just yet, but the chatter is already starting for the 2024 election. And this is only going to build over time. So this is like a public service announcement that we're <laughs> doing here. The articles talk about how to trade the presidential election. And it's always this is the most important election and investors should be getting their portfolios ready. Presidential elections Peter, just get the message out here. Is this a signal for investors or noise? Does it matter what party wins in 2024 or any year? Elections are the ultimate noise. Of course, you know which party's in power impacts policy a little bit, but we tend to really over-magnify those policies. And so I remember when President Obama won, people called me and said, oh, I'm going to leave the market. A couple of people I couldn't talk out of leaving the market. They were dead wrong. They missed huge opportunity. Donald Trump won. A couple of people called. Hey, I can't handle this. There was one advisor's client. I, I just couldn't talk him off the ledge. I think it was the only year ever or, or one of the few ever where the market went up 12 months in a row. I mean, the market is not blue or red. The market is green. It's green. It only cares about money. It only cares about earnings. Are you going to go to Chipotle less? Are you going to buy less Diet Coke? Are you going to go to Disney World less based on who's president? Give me a break. Get this out of your thinking. It's usually like this pollution from the media. Just get it out of your thinking because it's a classic way investors make mistakes. They extrapolate whatever negativeness around a candidate that may win and they start to make their personal monetary decisions based on it. And it's usually results in unequivocal disaster. Right. And we're pretty polarized today. There was this poll out of Pew Research. It just indicates what probably everyone's seeing and feeling, and probably social media has made this a lot worse, but showing the percentage of people that are viewing the other party as unfavorable. So today, it's about three times higher than where it was in 1994 across both parties. And that is going to lead to the temptation of what you're talking about, that if they're 
candidate doesn't get in, that it's a time to sell out of their portfolio. What I tell people is think about how dynamic the U.S. and the structure that's built in. And thankfully, it's not reliant on one individual, our economy and earnings and the stock market. We have a balance of power in the U.S. If one party is doing something that the people don't like, they'll vote them out of office. We have eight years is the max in terms of term limits. But any country, let's say we have a dictatorship, I might agree with you that that individual is making all of the decisions. It's pretty important who's in charge. We don't have that system, thankfully, and any one individual isn't that important, as you said, to this huge economy that we have in the U.S., Thankfully, that's a feature of the U.S. economy. So <laughs> thankfully, that's the case. But we have data to back this up. It's not just you and I saying, ignore it. The data is there. If we look at the growth of a dollar since 1961, you can see blue, red, blue, red tends to go up over time. And you can go back even longer than this. And we see pretty similar returns regardless of who's in power. The biggest difficulty, Peter, obviously, is that Getting out, you might get out and touring a period, and you mentioned it after 2008, or if you look at 2016 when Trump got elected, you might be getting out just before a period where there's a huge market advance. And then by the time your candidate comes back into power, the market's much higher. And this is a study going back to 1900 showing if you had just invested in one party, either Democrats or Republican versus everything, staying in for the entire period, you could see the difference here. Your balance is growing 10,000 to over. 7 million versus less than a million for either just the Republicans or just the Democrats. So that time in the market can be huge. You might get lucky and the market might go down, but very difficult to try to predict that there's going to be a bad four-year period and even more difficult to attribute that to who's in power as a president, right? Yeah, what's sad about your former chart is we've gone from like thinking our ideas are better than their side to having real contempt for the other side. And uh, that just sucks socially. But from an investment perspective, it's a disaster. And, you know, the investor, you know, you look at this chart, the investor who just ignores everything and goes to bed at night and doesn't let their mind get polluted with all this craziness crushes the person who spends 10 hours a day on it. You know, less time, less anxiety, more reward. A good point you made just there. Maybe as a country and a society and at least try to do it with our friendships, don't assume a person is bad or good based on the ideas or who they support. Their ideas or their ideas, they might be different than you. That doesn't make them a bad person. We used to feel that way, I think, a lot more. I think today it's like if you believe one thing, well, we can't separate the beliefs from the person. We're kind of saying you're bad or good based on that. That's an unfortunate thing. But the lesson for investors is clear. Leave politics out of your portfolio. And this is like a preventative medicine here. We're not there just yet in terms of 2024. We'll cover this again before the election. But the last few election cycles, this has been a big issue. And we saw the data. I mean, in 2020, the percentage of people that were reacting in advance based on the election was pretty high. And these were high net worth individuals who should have known better, but their emotions got the better of them. So trust the data. And this is obviously an easy noise one, and we'll have a lot more signal in the future. But for now, this is noise. We're going to end it right there, Peter. For more content like this, subscribe to the channel. And we're also a podcast, so check us out on iTunes, Google, Spotify, all the major podcast platforms. And we'll see you next time on Signal or Noise. This show is designed to be informational in nature and does not constitute investment advice. 
Different types of investments involve varying degrees of risk, and there can be no assurance that the future performance of any specific investment or investment strategy, including those discussed on this show, will be profitable or equal any historical performance levels.